Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of March 5th, 2023. This is the first week of just two numbered episodes a week, so I can hopefully recoup some of my sanity. Episodes going forward will be released on Monday and Friday. Hopefully that means I can do some other content, like I am starting on the Data Mesh Light and Shade Substack, um, where I'm writing some of my own content. My call to action this week is please actually spend the three minutes to at least rate the podcast. You don't have to review it, but at least rate it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. I know many of you have listened to tens, maybe even 100 plus hours of the content of this show. So please do me a solid. It's kind of important for some of the future endeavors. It's kind of important for more people to be able to find it. I know a lot of people have said they just stumbled across it rather than it was recommended to them. And so I just want more people to be able to find that. If you want to make a post on LinkedIn about, hey, this this thing is, is great or whatever, I'd appreciate that. But at least please just go and, and click the, you know, and five stars, please. But, you know, whatever. Also, go talk to people in the Data Mesh Learning Slack to collaborate on some content or something. Do you want to put out some content? It's pretty easy to find somebody that's interested in doing that. So what's on tap for this week? On Monday, we have episode 202, Creating a Balanced, Sustainable Approach to Your Data Mesh Journey, which is an interview with Kieran Prakash at ThoughtWorks. So Kieran is another thought worker, and we discussed getting to an actual like sustainable practice with data mesh. Like how do you find a reasonable pace and keep making progress, especially as you transition from early journey to more mature stages? Like what can we do that's going to really make it so that you can do data mesh over the long haul instead of just trying to um, run through it and speed run through it? And that, you know, how do you keep that momentum? And, and how do you find your, your target operating model? There's a lot of, and he kind of goes through all the, at the end, there's a, a, a little bit of a, a place where he kind of goes on a rant of here are all the like 15 things that you've got to check to make sure you're doing right stuff. So it's, it's useful from that perspective too. On Friday, we have episode 203, which is um, the first of kind of the data mesh radio specific panels. And that is making privacy practical and scalable in data and data mesh. This was led by De- uh, Deborah Farber with uh, Samia Rahman and uh, Catherine Jarmal. And you know, this is the first of our series of panels specifically designed for Data Mesh Radio. I'm sourcing for many more. If, if you have a topic you want covered or have ideas for guests, for guests, do get in touch. But this panel specifically is all about data privacy and how when you, you do it right, it can unlock so much more value and lower risk, right? A lot of people are doing all these things to get to data that... Um, has been deemed too risky 
And so uh, you end up with shadow IT and you end up with much more risk than even if you were to give them access and, and kind of do it in such a way that, that you can understand what they're doing. And, you know, in general, the cost of actually implementing privacy enhancing technologies is coming down very quick. And with the increasing amount of privacy protecting legislation, I think this will be a topic many need to focus on maybe in the second half of 2023 and into 2024. I think privacy will be one of the big ones. So I think, and it's just a, a fun conversation, you know, they they uh, just all had a a lot of fun banter back and forth. So with that, on to the extended summaries for the episodes this week. Extended summary for episode 202, Creating a Balanced, Sustainable Approach to Your Data Mesh Journey, an interview with Kieran Prakash. So I interviewed Kieran, who's a principal engineer at ThoughtWorks for this episode. Kieran started off by talking about a blog post of his with a colleague from 2019, even before the, the first data mesh blog post came out on Martin Fowler's site, called The Curse of the Data Lake Monster. Lots of clients for ThoughtWorks were building big data lakes and it wasn't providing the expected value, something that Jamak really dug into as well. There was an expectation that if you ingested and processed as much of your data as you could, it would create you know, these great use cases and lots of value, but it, it didn't happen. Value does, it doesn't just happen without concerted and concentrated effort. It's not that people really think about I'm going to go figure out what could be possible and go build it, especially in a data lake sense, because they have to do so much of the work themselves. So Kieran asked, why, why aren't we applying product thinking to data to figure out and focus on what matters to actually drive towards value? What would happen if we focused on outcomes instead of platforms? What if we measured value, not how many terabytes were processed and stored? A key reason Kieran feels kind of this curse happened was the strong separation between business and IT. That separation meant both were seeking different goals instead of collaborating around driving to value. IT was focused on building things instead of solving business problems. And the business side was focused on doing what they could, not on building out a, a scalable and robust data practice and really participating in kind of the internal data economy. You know, basically Conway's law in action. We saw microservices really help to tackle those same issues on the operational plane. So the data side of the house was definitely ripe for some product thinking led innovation and to kind of change up what we were doing. Data Mesh avoids a lot of the issues of past data approaches by not leading with the technology. The first two principles are not tech focused. For Kieran, many, or maybe most, of the organizations that are getting data mesh right or doing data mesh well are respecting Conway's law and shifting their architecture and organizational approaches together, but in thin slices so as to not put too many eggs in one basket and make reasonable progress. 
and they are getting the exact sponsorship because while you don't want to reorganize your entire company up front to do data mesh, you need some top-down pushing to actually drive the necessary org changes when appropriate, whether that's reorgs or whether that's changing KPIs and OKRs or, or whatever, that you need that ability for to go to someone and say, we need to accomplish this. How do we accomplish this? And they have some juice to actually do that. Yes, politics sucks, but it's the way organizations work. So you need that exact sponsor. According to Kieran, while many people think that data mesh has a high barrier to entry, that shouldn't really be the case. There should definitely be a target operating model at the organizational level, and organizations need to keep that in mind. But it's not as though, again, you reorganize the the whole organization up front, right? Organizations need to really answer the question of what are they trying to do with data and what would doing data mesh well drive for them? If that's not crisp, they probably aren't ready to do data mesh because their business strategy isn't aligned to or contingent on doing data well. So again, circling back on that like high barrier of entry, you don't need to think about we have to do everything. This has to be this huge big deal. It can be we're trying to do this. We're trying to see if this works for us so that we can execute on this. And if it works in this instance, We're going to apply it to additional problems, but if it doesn't work, then it's not a huge deal. We haven't made a huge bet. We haven't completely focused the entire organization around doing this just because we're trying it out, right? That's that high barrier to entry, putting a lot of risk there when it's not necessary and it's not useful. Once the organization has set their, or has their their target operating model and vision down, Kieran recommends that domains should start to set their own specific goals aligned to the broader organizational vision. They should work on some hypotheses on how to achieve those goals and how they plan to measure their progress towards those goals. Start to build out your thin slice approach to making progress towards your vision and goals. Don't get super far ahead of yourself. Look to progress at a meaningful but reasonable pace and tackle as little as is necessary now while still making sure you are aligning with the organizational vision. Keep your eyes on the prize. Don't take on too much now. And yes, easier said than done. So again, circling back on this a little bit, you need to, to think about breaking things down tangibly and saying, okay, here is our organizational vision are our goals. And then each domain can start to say, okay, here are my specific goals and what I'm trying to achieve and how that supports, right? How does that support my overall business vision? Kieran pointed to a quote he, he read about, if you modernize your legacy software stack, but don't change your organization at the same time, you will need to do the same modernization in about five years. The same will go for data. If you are taking on data mesh from a tech-first approach, you'll just have to do the same modernization again in three, five years, and you won't get a lot of the potential benefit from data mesh. Decentralizing the architecture will only really change things if you change the organizational aspects too. People, process, technology.
For Kieran, we need to really start to focus more on measuring value outcomes instead of inputs, you know, or or outputs or whatever, right? How many terabytes or operations per second? It's not directly tied to value. Teams need to have it made clear what is actually valued and valuable. In many large organizations, there are often less clear links between data work and business value. So you have to educate, incentivize teams to do the high value work. You need to have that communication. You need to make clear links so everybody can can understand why you're actually doing this. When thinking about trying to measure the return on data investment in data work, especially data mesh, Curran recommends starting by breaking it down into more tangible goals and measuring the value of achieving those goals. Then you can start to say, how did the work contribute to achieving those goals? But a data team can't really know the value themselves, whether they are inside the domain or not. And by breaking things into smaller goals and objectives, you can more quickly iterate towards value with tight feedback loops. Instead of large-scale projects, you build to larger and larger objectives through breaking things down and achieving meaningful micro-progress that leads to large macro value, right? This is that whole... I mean, even the whole data mesh concept of it's not that the data products are the in the point themselves, it's that the data products enable you to do so much more, especially when you start to have uh, interoperability and connections between those. Kieran talked about thinking of use cases as value hypotheses. You believe something will have value and thus you are making a bet. And it's okay to get things wrong. Just limit the scope of the mistake so you can use the missteps as learning so the larger macro bet has a much higher chance of paying off. This is iterating to value, those tight feedback loops. If you don't have a culture where it's okay to be wrong, okay to fail, then data mesh is potentially not right for you. I would say in my personal opinion, it's almost definitely not right for you if you don't have that place where it's okay to be wrong. Minimum viable product is often neither minimum nor viable in Kieran's experience. If you can't put something pretty rough in front of stakeholders, you waste far more time and effort building in wrong directions and are less likely to hit on success. That's often out of control of the product team. So it's a catch-22. Do you put in a lot of effort to get it to well past and you know minimum viable product, or do you risk losing face by putting something that's pretty rough in front of somebody? So we need a culture where we can actually do thin slicing well to really derive the most value out of building software, whether that is applications or data products or whatever. That incremental value delivery is really crucial to maintaining your nimbleness as you scale. If you can't actually deliver in thin slices, it can significantly increase risk as you are making larger bets, right? You make these large bets before you start to get your incremental feedback. But Kieran's seen that if you spend the time to explain the need for thin slicing and that what your your initial users or customers or whatever you want to call them, what they're looking at is, is kind of that sneak peek and you just want feedback, most people get it and are reasonable, but you need to communicate about this. Kieran used a phrase Martin Fowler often uses uh, that he got from Ralph Johnson, which is, quote unquote, architecture is about the important stuff, whatever that is. 
When thinking about decisions that are hard to reverse, spend a lot of time and care, but the ones where it's easy to reverse, those probably don't make up the core of kind of your architecture. If it's really easy to just kind of flip to something different, then that's not probably a core architectural decision. When building your architecture, it's again important to build incrementally instead of trying to get it perfect from the start as well. Think about necessary capabilities, not technologies. In Data Mesh, that is about data product production and then monitoring and then data product consumption, mesh level interoperability querying, et cetera. Kieran went on a lot about the necessary capabilities late in the episode if you want to listen to that. Start to map out what you need and then think like what level you need from a capability standpoint and when. You don't need to build out capabilities for when you have 20 data products, when you just have one to two data products in development, right? And then ending on a quick tidbit, Kieran was talking about leverage the four key metrics from Dora to measure how well you were doing software engineering as applied to data. Those metrics are one, lead time to changes, two, deployment frequency, three, mean time to recovery, and four, change failure rate. Extended summary for episode 203, making privacy practical and scalable in data and data mesh. So this was a a panel, and before we jump in, a quick acronym to know is PETs, is Privacy Enhancing Technology. And then as well, I'm going to give a quick warning as to kind of late in the episode, uh, all three panelists got really excited about talking about how amazing it would be if we actually had some of these uh, PETs applied to our own personal data. I think it's a little early. So thinking, you know, I don't want to get your hopes up too much, but (laughs) I think there's a lot of really interesting applications that they talked about. So in this episode, guest host Deborah Farber, who's a privacy expert and host of the Shifting Privacy Left podcast, facilitated a discussion with Catherine Jarmel, who's the author of the upcoming book, Practical Data Privacy, and is also a principal data scientist at ThoughtWorks. She's also was guest of episode 157. The other panelist was Samia Rahman, who's the director of data and AI strategy and architecture at the life sciences company, CGen, and she was the guest of episode number 67. So before I jump into this, rather than trying to reflect their takeaways, I know I do that for most interview episodes, this is going to be kind of what are my takeaways, what, and this is how I'm going to do it going forward for, for panels rather than trying to reflect the views of a bunch of different people. So my, we'll start with my top seven takeaways. So number one, privacy has been dominated by risk compliance historically, but it's starting to move past the defensive governance aspects. Privacy has mostly been at the tail end of the development cycle across systems and data, but it's starting to shift left across the board, much like a lot of aspects around data with data mesh. Number two, regarding data mesh, given how many additional aspects of development we are asking domains to own, is it really fair to ask them to own privacy as well? How can we train people to understand when to use these privacy-enhancing technologies and, and then make it 
easy to implement those decisions. This is much like other aspects of the the self-serve platform. We need to really think about that. Number three, privacy tech is emerging and maturing at a very significant rate. What was once a pipe dream or was prohibitively expensive is much closer to being available to kind of the masses of those organizations out there. Much like data mesh in general couldn't really have been done before cloud-native tooling and technologies started to mature, privacy is in a similar way forward. If you want to hear more about specific tech, there's some talk in this episode and then in Catherine's uh, interview, which was, again, episode 157. Number four, with the explosion in upcoming privacy-focused legislation across the world, much of which is at least slightly different from each other. You know, every jurisdiction is deciding, you know, their own little rules and everybody has to comply with all of them, right? So with that, we will see a large increase in the need for organizations to do privacy well and do privacy better in general. Shifting left is really the only way to do this scalably or we'll potentially see organizations stop doing a lot of currently valuable data work because the cost of privacy and risk compliance around that data work becomes prohibitive. Upcoming legislation may be the thing pushing privacy forward more than anything else. Number five, privacy is extra crucial when dealing with with data leaving the organization, whether that's via a partnership or for those organizations selling their data on a marketplace. Mojgan Tavakolifard, uh, who was in episode 154, talked about this where many companies are opting to merely package and sell insights because they can't track usage deep into those partner data purchaser systems. So they don't know if it's compliant usage. So they make it so that they'll sell the insight, not the data. So they're not worried about compliant usage. It's also a bit like what Jamak discussed about data going into the data science area of an organization right now and all the kind of governance and visibility at best gets hazy. She talked about that in Jamak's corner number 18 or episode 195. So will cross-organization data mesh help address that? I don't know. Probably, but it's five plus years away in, in my view. Number six, paraphrasing Deborah. At the end of the day, privacy is not about compliance. Privacy is about respecting the humans behind the data, not just the data itself. Protecting the data itself is about risk to the organization. That's compliance. We need to encourage a mindset of how do I respect these humans' choices and their desires in the the context of collecting the data. That's essential. And finally, number seven of my key takeaways, if you don't do privacy well, there are risks to the company, of course. But a big one is that people will still look for and usually find ways to get access to sensitive data. People will seek out that value. If you make it If you make data easily accessible with the right privacy levels, you can unlock many high value new use cases in compliant and low risk ways. Organizations should look to at the rewards of doing privacy well, not only the risks of doing it poorly, and kind of that they understand that if you do it poorly, people are still going to try and get access to the data even, even if they shouldn't have it. And so do you want that with some privacy around that, some compliance around that or not? So some other important takeaways, many touch on similar points from kind of the key takeaways above, 
but uh, from different aspects. So number one, new ways of doing privacy are going to mean, quote unquote, measurable, quantifiable, verifiable, and auditable tools and capabilities. Number two, we need to think of privacy like any other tooling in the development lifecycle. It's about providing abstractions to make the easy and right calls to the domain experts and having a central support structure when things are more tricky, right? Like this is every aspect of governance. You need to have that kind of central team backing them and you need to make it so people can make choices instead of interact with tools. Number three, privacy isn't just about the data. It's not simply, you know, a metadata-like concept. People are trying to add back privacy to data at rest. Much of the important aspects of privacy are about how the data flows through systems and privacy in those flows and each of the systems, not just the end place it gets stored. Number four, in data mesh, the self-service platform will need, or does it currently need, to provide privacy as code capabilities. And so people can easily build data products with privacy built in instead of added at the end of the process. We can't expose the tech, right, to people. That's just far too complex. How do we provide the good abstractions to make this easy and thus scalable? Number five, we need an ability to almost have a privacy capability as an ingest mechanism. You know, a consumer points at the data source and say, we need this anonymized and it's not super custom built by the producers. We're just at the start of developing these types of capabilities, but we need to make it so it's not all on the producer. Consumers can consume with privacy that they apply on demand. Number six, we need policies as code or other easily digestible forms of policies and compliance. And we need to train our people well on what privacy means, why it's important, when to apply, etc. Number seven, we need tooling to help with federated privacy because otherwise there is too much privacy context and knowledge and technology to learn and it won't be scalable. It appeals it appears there are some tools emerging, but it's still seemingly early days. Number eight, anonymization is often pretty easy to uh, overcome if you just add additional data sets. This is especially a risk in sharing data with other organizations. Anonymization isn't a wand you wave and all your pri privacy risks get taken care of. You still have to think about how can this data be combined with something else and and de-anonymize the data and how do we you know, protect against that? Number nine, how can we still derive the value of anonymized data sets? It's often much harder. So will companies do the ethical privacy aspects or only the required aspects of privacy for you know, compliance reasons and things? We need better, easier PETs to make it easier to still extract value from anonymized data. Number 10, how do we balance enough privacy training and not hit information overload? It's hard to get people to learn what's necessary because privacy is such a big topic. We need global and domain level policies that can again be actually digestible. Number 11, can we measure time to compliance, time to privacy, time to kind of doing the right things around ethics? That would be best to understand where we need to improve, but we're probably just at the start of that. This is an interesting fitness function area to look at.
Number 12, subject matter experts or SMEs have so much specific knowledge that you need to leverage them to discover privacy risks and privacy rewards too. Much like any aspect of government, governance, trying to have the central team make decisions just isn't scaling. So we need to make the, the people in the domain capable enough to handle privacy. Number 13, about privacy rewards. In many organizations, there are very high value sets of data that cannot be leveraged for specific use cases due to privacy and other compliance restrictions. Getting to a place where we can easily leverage that high risk but high value data will potentially unlock lots, you know, large amounts of, of business value. But it's hard. You know, you have to think about if we apply privacy right to this, how do we get more value out of it? Number 14, there are lots of instances of teams finding those high value data sets and using shadow IT to get at them. If that's the only way people can get access, many will completely skirt any compliance and privacy. So getting to a place where they have access, but it's according to policy and tracked is crucial to lower organizational risk from compliance and and ethics wise. Number 15 from Catherine, quote, but if you build easier ways to get access and safer, more responsible, more ethical ways to get access, then you have a win-win situation and people are not going to find shortcuts. Number 16, companies are starting to loosen the shackles on data and focus on maintaining privacy, but also enabling innovation around privacy-sensitive data. That's a great mindset, but there are still many questions on how to do that specifically. Number 17, Too many, especially in blockchain, conflate privacy and confidentiality. Keeping something confidential is a security aim. So if you focus on confidentiality, you can't actually use the data you have. No one is allowed to get access. It's on lockdown. Number 18, we need to get better at risk modeling for privacy. What are the potential harms by the humans, right? Like not just the systems, but the actual humans. We need to move beyond only thinking about if there might be a breach, what data might they get? We can free up far more data for far more uses if we do the right thing, but ethics around data usage is not a common thought. We need to train people to think ethically and about potential harm you know, from internal actors and external. Number 19, there are multiple issues with anonymized data. Are you taking away the utility? Are you fooling yourself into thinking it can't be de-anonymized? It's a pretty out, you know, common outcome with adding additional data sets. It's especially a risk if you're sharing data externally. Don't treat anonymization as your ha- hammer and everything looks like nails when it comes to privacy. Number 20, we need to teach developers about differential privacy, which is about quote unquote, bounding the, the probability of someone learning you know, a specific thing. Differential privacy got a bad reputation, but we can add noise and maintain accuracy now. We couldn't really do that. It is, you know, as Catherine said, the gold standard for anonymization. Number 21, healthcare patient data is one of the biggest challenges in privacy because you want to maximize the efficacy of care, but also maximize privacy. And then how do companies take data of the individual to extrapolate further to broader broader trends? Like, hey, how do we see when two people have this diagnosis? What does that mean for the rest of their health? Well, if only a few people have that, then it's a big privacy concern. 
Number 22, we need to get people upskilled so they can understand when to transform data in privacy-preserving ways. And then the self-serve platform needs to make it easy for them to do that. But we don't have great industry-wide understanding of how to do either of those that well quite yet. Number 23, self-sovereign identity, while very interesting, is probably a long way from being widely adopted. There needs to be a lot of industry collaboration and agreement, and it's not really a big benefit in many areas based on the legal requirements versus cost. It would be great for company-to-company interoperability with privacy, but who will build it? The three panelists were very excited about self-sovereign identity, though. So it is something to kind of look into and and hope. And finally, number 24, privacy and data sovereignty are going to be intermingled in interesting ways in data mesh. Querying data where it is instead of piping it all over the world will help maintain privacy and comply with laws. Many countries don't allow data to be exported as is. And there's a lot of confusion a lot of times about um, querying data where, you know, not moving data around and querying data where, where it is in data mesh. So if you want to learn more about that, there's your max corner number 13, episode 173, that com- covers some of what querying data where it is means and that it's not necessarily about leaving data in source c- systems, but it means not moving it without necessity and not moving it um, across uh, ownership without necessity. So with that, I'll shut up and I hope you have a great week. Thank mm-hmm. you.